0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: You keep hearing this phrase in the news, right? Double mutant variant. Double mutant variant of COVID-19. It is very feared to be behind a record surge in new cases in India and now we know it's been found in Canada. On Wednesday, BC confirmed 39 cases of the B1617 variant. Quebec reported it as the first known case of the variant in their province as well this week. And now because of all those concerns and pressure, I think, from the public, Canadian government also has announced a 30-day ban on passenger flights from India and Pakistan that went into effect overnight. It is now in effect and will last for the next month or so. And if you're arriving via a non-direct flight from India, you have to, wherever you stop, whether it's, you know, New Delhi to uh, Los Angeles or whatever, you have to get another COVID test in that other place where you stop before you can continue on to Canada. Let's talk more about this double mutant variant, though. What does that mean? Joining us is Jason Kinderchuk, the Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. Jason, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Okay, so what does it mean when we say a double mutant variation? Yeah, it's,
2: you know, part of it has been, you know, what, what, does, what does that actually signify, right? So when we think about these variants, um, what, what we're starting to recognize is that there's, there's specific sequences or kind of specific flags um, that, uh, that that tell us whether or not they, they may be something of interest. There, there may be, you know, a little bit of, uh, of a spark there for, for us to follow up. So when we're hearing stuff about, you know, double mutants and triple mutants, What that tells us is that these particular variants have two or three different pieces that might tell us that they're a little bit more interesting or a little bit more concerning than uh, than other variants that are moving around because we we see mutations in this virus all the time. It's a question of do these mutations actually amount to anything? And and I I caution um, everybody to to keep in mind that when we hear about variants uh, and and certainly variants of concern, They have many mutations. Um, So, you know, when we're talking about double or or triple or we hear that coming out, it's about these very specific uh, kind of areas that uh, that that seem to be of interest.
1: Does that show us then once again, is that viruses are so much smarter? They if they they vary once, right, they make that change once. And then if that's not good enough, the virus will do it again.
2: Uh, Yeah, well, welcome to uh, evolution and adaptation with uh, with viruses, right? So, yeah, this is exactly it. And I think what's interesting for us is that, you know, in the span of, you know, six to, arguably about six months now, I guess maybe eight months, we've been able to see that in very diverse areas of the world, we're seeing very similar mutations that, that are occurring, which actually I think is very good for us in a way um, because it's starting to tell us what the blueprint of uh, of SARS coronavirus 2 is and what types of mutations, um, you know, we can potentially predict are, are going to occur next as, as this virus continues to adapt.
1: Can we predict that?
2: I think we're getting closer. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing with, you know, certainly with the, the uh, variant in India is that we, even though we have this ability to say, okay, we, we think that it's, it's of interest, and there's these you know, mutations that, that are showing up, it doesn't mean that we can be 100%, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, understanding of whether or not this results in a behavioral change in the virus. It tells us it might be different, but until we actually, you know, get the epidemiology data and certainly get some, some characterization in the lab, we don't know for sure. And, and that's the the puzzle with all this is sometimes... You can have mutations that look like they're going to be meaningful, but there are other mutations that may, you know, kind of—I uh, don't want to say contraindicate, but certainly may lessen uh, right. the impact of those. So it's 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 always a learning game.
1: So what is the danger then, Jason, of allowing these variants to run around unchecked?
2: Yeah, certainly with B one one seven, I think we we saw what happened in the UK very quickly, right? And certainly here in Canada, um, you know, we we had a variant. That, uh, that has an enhanced transmissibility. The, the increased disease severity is certainly has been, uh, I think, a, a little bit questioned. But if you think about just the fact of how easily that, that variant has been able to transmit and how quickly it's taken over uh, the, the areas where we already had circulation, um, that's, that's the danger, is that once these things get in, it's, it's tough to get them under control if they actually do have some of these enhanced behaviors. So I think you're seeing a lot of precaution right now in people saying, "Listen, we already have problems with with transmission that we need to get under control. So we until we understand what's going on, we need to be cautious."
1: That sounds like we're just rolling the dice, though, right? Like with everything that we try, whether it's you know vaccines, even the herd immunity issue, we're just rolling the dice that this virus isn't going to get even smarter.
2: Well, it's you know, listen. Flu does this to us all the time, right? So it, it certainly it's a concern for us. I think the the light at the end of the tunnel is when you look at the vaccines and you look at certainly how well the vaccines have fared against B one one seven and P one and B one three five one at least from from the auspice of what we understand about neutralizing antibodies and how they behave, um, and it's certainly in the lab. I think we have quite a bit of confidence that even with new variants that we still will get good coverage on the vaccines and, and then of course you have the adaptability of the mRNA vaccine so it's, it's always a race against pathogens but I, I think we're actually uh, you know we have a leg up uh, that, that we certainly did not have even a decade ago.
1: Right do you get a sense though you mentioned the flu there that COVID is kind of turning into how we treat the flu is this something we're going to be dealing with for years to come?
2: Well, I think it's. I, I like to be an optimist when I can. Um, I look at the vaccine rollout, particularly in, in low, middle-income areas of the world and, and resource-limited settings. That, to me, when you're looking at you know two to three years down the road of potentially seeing those areas getting to the same vaccine coverage as as us or uh, or, or our partners uh, in Europe and North and North America, that to me is where you look at that and say, okay, that's a long time. So the likelihood that this may become something that's endemic and that is, you know, is basically with us for a longer period of time is probably becoming more of a reality.
1: Right. So what you're saying is, Jason, that is that this, the virus mutates all the time. It's just that sometimes those turn out to be a deadlier version, sometimes not.
2: Yeah. If, listen, if biology is random at the best of times, right? And that's the frustrating part is we can't necessarily predict. What is going to happen next? There's, you know, there was this kind of belief, um, you know, I think being put out last year that, well, as the virus moves through and, and mutates, um, it may, you know, it may start to actually pick up mutations that make it less virulent or less deadly. Well, listen, that doesn't always hold up. So I think for us, we're, you know, our, our best chance of success is trying to drive transmission down because that way we at least, you know, can decrease the number of mutations that will occur.
1: So, what do you see as what's happening right now? Are we on that right path?
2: I, I think in certain areas of the world, we're certainly going there, right? So, I, I, you know, when you look at success stories, when you look at Israel, they're at I think point I think they're point two percent for their positivity rate. Um, certainly, the UK has been able to get B one one seven under control. Uh, there are other regions that are, that have been able to use kind of a, you know, a a dual strategy between non-pharmaceutical interventions and vaccination to get things uh, turned around fairly quickly. So I think we're getting there. Um, It it, it takes time, though. And that's the problem is that we're, we're battling not only against the transmission we already have, but the potential transmission from new variants if we see new things emerge. All
1: right, Jason, thank you so much for your time this morning. Hey, thanks for having me on. That's Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba, talking about double mutant variant that phrase that you have been hearing about so much in the last week or so and what it actually means just goes to show us once again this virus is so much smarter viruses are in general so much smarter right than i think people realize most of us anyway not people who work in the industry Uh, but that is what we are seeing with this one this
0: is mornings with simi
1: been very interesting watching the Cullen Commission this week. We're finally getting to hear from the people who were actually in charge, the politicians who were running things when money laundering seemed to be running rampant in our casinos and gaming institutions in this province. So earlier this week, we got to hear from former Premier Christy Clark. Well, now we heard from Shirley Bond. She's now the interim leader of the BC Liberals, but at the time, she was the minister responsible for gaming. This is back in 2011. She held that job for about a year or so. So she testified yesterday, and she says that when she took over as the minister responsible for gaming back then, she doesn't remember being specifically briefed on the issue. But let's have a listen to what her more of her testimony had to say. Here's John Hua. The media had already raised concerns about
3: BC casinos accepting stacks of suspicious cash.
2: We were all of the same mind that this has to be dirty money.
3: A high-ranking police officer publicly stated he believed it was the proceeds of crime. The provincial government even commissioned a review of anti-money laundering measures in casinos, later called the Croker Report.
2: Did you know during the time as the minister responsible for gaming that some high-limit players were buying in for hundreds of thousands of dollars, predominantly in $20 bills?
4: I was not. uh, That that was not raised uh, directly to my attention. But Shirley
3: Bond, the provincial minister responsible for gaming in 2011, told the Cullen Commission when she took over the file that March. In meetings with BC Lottery Corporation Brass, money laundering wasn't brought up.
4: The conversations I re- recall with Mr. Graydon were more focused about problem gaming than they were. Uh, and that, of course, relates to the issue of addictions.
3: As for the regulator, Bond said she was never told directly by the gaming policy and enforcement branch. The large amounts of cash continued to be accepted in casinos. The now interim leader of the B.C. Liberal Party also didn't ask.
4: I did not make that specific request because the audit was important in terms of the, uh, which ultimately resulted in the Croker report.
3: Bond's takeaway from that 2011 report, anti-money laundering measures in casinos were good enough but could be better. Her job implementing Croker's 10 recommendations.
4: The first nine recommendations were the immediate priority, knowing that they could make a material difference.
3: Consideration of the final recommendation a joint casino task force held off. According to Bond's media briefing notes, the reason, its complexity and cost.
4: The primary consideration for me as minister was what could we do uh, that would make an immediate impact.
3: The Cullen Commission also heard from one of BC's top public servants. Lori Wanamaker is the current deputy minister to the premier.
5: I believe there were a number of media stories at the beginning of January in 2011. And that's when it came to my attention.
3: From 2010 to 2012, Wanamaker was the deputy minister responsible for gaming. The main point of contact for the head of the regulator, who said he made it clear criminal cash in casinos was a concern. Yes, she was aware that I believe that uh, proceeds of crime, um, yes, that proceeds of crime was entering the casinos, absolutely. Being given that key information, something Wanamaker just can't recall.
1: Um, Did he raise to your attention um, his belief that the cash might be the proceeds of crime?
5: Not that I recall.
1: Um, Was that a concern that you had at the time? No, I don't believe I did.
3: In fact, Wanamaker didn't seem to remember any specific discussions around possible money laundering in casinos.
1: Was that a concern of yours at the time?
5: No, I don't believe it was.
3: Which begs the question, why did Wanamaker help commission a review on anti-money laundering measures in casinos, if no one within government brought it up as a concern? John Hua, Global News.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. As
1: Asian communities across Canada and the United States continue to be the subject of shocking violence, harassment, and abuse, Global News is proud to announce today it's a network-wide news special called Hidden Hate – anti-Asian racism. It's going to air on Saturday, 7.30 p.m. on Global. Now, this is the first of its kind that we are doing here in Canada. It's a program that features, you know, reporters and anchors from global news stations right across the country, including our very own Sophie Louis, uh, Tracy Tong, and much, much more. Joining us now is Tracy Tong, Global News multi-market anchor and producer to talk more about this. Tracy, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me on to me. So what are we going to get when we watch the show? What is the show all about?
6: Well, what the show is about is really highlighting and uh, hoping to promote a greater understanding of what's been happening to the Asian communities uh, here in Canada. Um, it was weeks ago when I first started to see these images and videos of violent attacks against Asian people, many of them elders, um, and those images really shook me. I remember speaking with family and friends about it with another colleague of mine, um, Miranda Antifo, who who's also a close friend. And the two of us really got together and thought, what can we do? Because we were both fearful for our own grandparents, for our own parents, thinking who could be next here? Um, and a lot of these victims that we're seeing also are elderly, they are immigrants, they are people who may not know how to speak up and share their experiences on their own or really know how to navigate the system to report it to police or to go to the right channels or or avenues to get their stories out there. So, you know, this really provides a platform and a voice for those who can't speak up. And we're hoping to promote a greater understanding as to what exactly is happening in this community uh, as a whole.
1: What kind of stories have you been hearing, Tracy?
6: You know, one thing that's really come out of this to me is that uh, it's, It's been eye-opening for me to realize how widespread and prevalent these racist incidents are. Anywhere from coughing and spitting on people over COVID-19 and during the pandemic, not to mention, um, to just racist comments, to physical assaults. And these incidents are happening every day, and a lot of them remain in the shadows. Uh, the ones that have come out, those numbers are alarming as well. In, in some of the major cities uh, in Canada, including Vancouver, as you know, has more than a 700% increase within a year of reported hate crimes. Um, we have cities like Ottawa and Montreal that have seen a more than 600% increase. Those numbers are alarming, but there are many more that go unreported. And so, you know, we've we've learned a lot in terms of the things that people have kept to themselves and now this new wave of being a chorus of of raising their voices together to show everyone else that these things are happening and that they need to be spoken about for there to be any real change.
1: Do you think that what's happening is, and and you kind of touched on this earlier, is a lot of people Mm -hmm. are experiencing this, but they're also not coming forward. Do you hope that this will help people to talk more about their experiences?
6: Yeah, that is the goal, and I think it happens on both sides. You know, on the one side, these people who are targets of, of these acts have been hesitant to come forward because they think, hey, what's the point? You know, th- this is this goes down a whole path of what even makes and reaches the threshold for a hate crime in the legal system. And that's not set up uh, in in favor of the reporting system either. But on the other side, that is what makes this largely an invisible issue because people keep these incidents to themselves. They don't think that there's a real point in coming forward and um, a lot of the police services across the country as well only keep data on hate crimes and not regular crimes that may be racially motivated. So when you try to look back for the data, it doesn't exist for a lot of these crimes or for a lot of these incidents. And so that's made it largely invisible. And we have a society here in Canada, um, which is very accepting and very diverse. And we're lucky to live here. But there's also a denial of. Um, And I found that largely, and, you know, we see all sorts of stuff on social media, but a lot of comments I've seen recently is that we don't have a problem here. Um, And I hope that this special really is eye-opening for a lot of people and makes them realize there is an issue and one that can be changed if we all work together.
1: Well, I look forward to watching the show. Tracy, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: So Canada is banning passenger flights, direct passenger flights from India and Pakistan for 30 days over these concerns about rising COVID-19 cases and that new double mutant variation of the virus. That, according to the federal government, we heard that yesterday. Now, in the last two weeks, more than 100 international flights have landed in Canada, and those flights have carried at least one positive COVID-19 case on board. That also is according to the federal government. And at least 32 of those flights were from India. So what does this mean now for the people who have been traveling back and forth? And what about the people who are there thinking they were going to be able to come back soon? Joining us now is Samit Baines, Operations Manager at Baines Travel. Samit, thanks for being with us this morning.
7: No problem, Samit. Thanks for having me.
1: So have you been getting calls about this? Are there people right now in India and Pakistan who were expecting to be able to come back home?
7: Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we started to get calls uh, yesterday evening, uh, you know, right after this was announced. And uh, we are expecting, um, you know, quite a few, uh, quite a few more today. But on the positive side, uh, because the rules have been so strict up to this point, we Probably have less than two hundred and fifty, or you know, two hundred and fifty to three hundred passengers who are who are there who are Canadian citizens. So the numbers are not um, huge, which is a good thing.
1: Right. I guess to I me mean, a lot of people do wonder then. Though what what were people doing traveling to begin with? What were some of the reasons for people to book these trips?
7: I think the the two main reasons people were going were usually property issues that had to be dealt with, and then um, deaths in the family. Those are pretty much the two reasons, you know, to see family members who were probably going to pass away or have since passed away. And those were the reasons that people were traveling. It's, the numbers were very tiny, of course, when they added the, uh, the quarantine, the hotel quarantine, you know, they dropped uh, dramatically from a very low point from where they already were. So there's not too many people who are um, who are in India right now who are trying to get home, but there are some for sure. And how we're going to get them back, uh, we are not quite sure of yet.
1: Okay. So are they just going to have to wait, do you think, this 30-day period out? That potentially, that's uh, probably
7: what's going to happen. Um, there are options through the states, uh, through San Francisco. Whether those flights will continue, uh, we don't know. Um, you know, those flights could also be cancelled. And, of course, if they do, you know, travel through the states, they have to, you know, uh, leave the leave the airport, get tested, get back on a flight. So all those things, you know, create costs and, and headache. And, you know, there's a lot of risk involved in travelling. There's a lot of risk of being in India right now. So... It's a struggle for everyone, but more than likely, um, the people who are there now will have to wait it out. I think, um, the big concern is will these restrictions be removed after 30 days? Will flights be allowed to operate? Because as we know with, um, you know, the U.S. border and the hotel restrictions, uh, now once they come in, uh, they sometimes, you know, kind of just keep getting extended, uh, month after month.
1: Right. Now, Simit, I know that normally in normal times, there'd be a lot of travel back and forth, lots of family going back and forth, visiting all of that uh, to India. Is there an awareness, though, right now of the concern of the way COVID-19 is is spreading in that country?
7: Oh, yeah. No, people have family there. I mean, it's it's a scary time in India. I mean, you know, I guess we all thought that, you know, come this spring that things were potentially going to be better and, you know, we, you know, things would start to open up and unfortunately, we seem to be in, in the worst part of this pandemic. So, you know, here in BC, you know, we are, we're announcing future lockdowns today and in India, you know, things are, are not very good at all. So, you know, people who did travel there, they were traveling there because they really didn't have a choice and they, they knew the risk um, that they were taking when they were traveling. So, Now they just have to wait it out more than likely and see if we can get them home uh, sooner rather than later.
1: I guess you have to give a lot of advice too, don't you? So for people like advising them about the quarantine rules and making sure all of that followed, do you find that that falls on, on you and your business as well?
7: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, that's, that's one of the things we try to do. We try to advise people, you know, what they need to do, you know, have their papers in order in order that um, they are able to travel if they are planning to travel. But to be perfectly honest, um, there's not a lot of people going right now um, anywhere. So, I mean, that's uh, that's what the government wants. And that's, I think, what we need to do as a country in order to, you know, pr- make sure that everyone stays healthy. But, uh, yeah, we just have to keep waiting okay. it out and hopefully things get better in the next, you know, few weeks or a few months.
1: Right. Some of the federal government's numbers, though, like they point out, 32 flights from India in the last two weeks across Canada. That seems like a big number, but can you put that into perspective for us? Like how many flights were arriving from India on a weekly basis before all this happened?
7: Well, before all this happened, yes, there was daily flights every day. You know, multiple flights uh, into Vancouver and Toronto, but you know that's where most of the traffic is now. But previous to COVID, I mean, you could travel through China, through Europe. I mean, there was you know hundreds of there was there were thousands of people arriving every day from from yeah. It's a trick we're, we're probably down over ninety nine percent of traffic. The uh, so there's there's very few people going and. Uh, the ones that are usually have a pretty specific reason to travel.
1: All right. Well, Samit, listen, best of luck in what Thank you have you to so do much. here. Yeah. Thanks for joining yeah. us. Okay. Thanks. That's Samit Baines, operations manager at Baines Travel. They do have clients over in India who started to phone yesterday hearing about uh, this ban now for 30 days. And he said they're likely just going to have to wait it out and see what happens. Question now being what happens after the 30 days? Uh, There is a way for them to come home via a non-direct flight But it does require another COVID-19 test wherever you stop. Like if you have a layover for a couple of hours, say in Los Angeles or, you know, somewhere else, it requires a COVID-19 test during that layover, no matter how short or how long it is, to come back to Canada. So that loophole has also been closed, and we'll see what the impact of that is.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Have you been following the numbers, the terrible numbers from our public health emergency? I'm not talking about COVID-19. I know lots of people follow those numbers. I'm talking about the opioid overdose pandemic. This month marked five years since that epidemic was declared a public health emergency, and it shows no signs of slowing down. In fact, it seems to be getting worse. According to BC Emergency Health Services, paramedics responded to our province's highest single-day number of overdose calls in Our History. That was on Wednesday. 138 potential overdoses got the call, 45 of them in Vancouver, 17 in Surrey, 10 in Victoria, and 66 across the rest of the province. So let's talk about this. Why isn't this getting better? Well, Leslie McBain has been deep in this for a few years now. Leslie is the co-founder of Mom Stop the Harm. She lost her son to opioid addiction as well. Leslie, thanks for being with us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for asking me. What do you What do you think? What do you feel when you hear about these latest numbers from Wednesday? I I have so
5: much frustration. Uh, this is uh, obviously, as you say, not not getting better. It is getting worse, and the answers are in front of us. The solution, you know, at least the immediate solutions are available to us, and they're not being utilized by the government. and And I think that's. The biggest frustration. I mean, we're talking about people's lives, just as we do with COVID. And I don't like to conflate the two. But at the same time, is one person's life more important than another's because of the, the way they die? I mean, I kind of look at it that way. And it's, it's heartbreaking and
1: frustrating. When you say we've got the tools and we're not using them, what do you mean? What I mean is, and, and I think you've heard me say this before, but a safe,
5: regulated pharmaceutical supply of the drugs that people who are addicted need to to not have to access the, uh, the illicit market and the thing is, you know substance use disorder is a medical condition it's been talked about, doctors will agree, researchers agree, uh, yet. We, we don't give people what they need with that condition, so they're forced to go into the street. And there's just this amazingly lucrative black market in the drugs that uh, are out there for them. So you know, if we were able to uh, implement, it, and there's several ways of doing it, the safer drugs through you know through the through regula- regulation and and that kind of impl- implementation then people have the chance of having safe drugs until they might want to consider recovery or treatment.
1: One of the things I know that has been talked about for the last few years is this, this idea of trying to even bring addiction out into the open, right? Let's say, like, just don't use in secret. That has been mm-hmm. a huge issue. Do you think we've made any movement on that, the destigmatization?
5: I think we've made a little bit of progress on that. I mean, as, as and you know, unfortunately, as the deaths... Grow And as the media um, pays attention to the problem, then people start to hear about it, start to understand what kind of problem it is. Uh, The stigma is still there. People still are hiding. And, and, you know, there's a lot of the people who are uh, addicted, who have substance use disorder, who actually have jobs and live in homes. And um, they they have a lot of uh, fear around coming out around their addiction. You know, we see in the media, we see the people who are on the street, maybe in the downtown east side. That's what's visible to us. And so there's stigma everywhere around drug use. I think things are improving slightly. Uh, One of the things that would really help is decriminalization of people who possess personal amounts of illicit drugs. Um, There's nothing more stigmatizing than getting arrested, you know, for for essentially for medicine that you need, so that would be very helpful.
1: And I know you make a, a good point there when you say when we talk about this, too often the picture that comes to people's mind because it's the picture they've seen is of the downtown east side, right? right but right. we also know that most people are dying in private residences. It's not people on the downtown east side. Uh, do are, is that message getting through to people? then about uh, about where this is actually happening I mean, these are your neighbors right these are mm-hmm. your friends these are your family members
5: yeah exactly uh the people and i do want to say that the people in the downtown east side and areas such as that are dying i mean their their situation is critical uh their friends are dying i mean they are they are us but in a different just in a different venue so we have to have compassion for them but um yeah, the people that are dying in their homes are, you know, they're very vulnerable because they're usually dying alone. They're usually not having someone near them. Um, and often they don't, not even their neighbors or their, even their family suspects that they have an addiction. So, so there is, you know, the stigma still rolls on, and I think, I believe that is the primary cause of the government stalling on, on things that they could actually implement.
1: What was it like for your son? Maybe if I'm sure, I don't know if everybody knows the story of what happened to yeah. you and your son, but how did yeah. he become addicted? He—that's
5: um, a hard question for me to answer. But the the last part of his life, he had uh, a back injury on on a job, and he'd gone to our family doctor, who prescribed oxycodone, which is oxycontin, uh, for his for his pain, and the doctor kept prescribing it to him for for seven months, and so Jordan became very, very addicted to, to the opioid. And then the doctor, who didn't know very much about addiction, just cut him off, and Jordan went to various walk-in clinics and was able to um, receive different drugs, some opioids, some benzodiazepines. And he, he, one day he took several of these uh, pills in combination, and, and it stopped his heart. So it, it was... Tragic that,
1: that could be and heartbreaking, anybody, but it, it
5: it was a little different.
1: That could be anybody, though, couldn't it? The way it you could be anybody, it? yeah.
5: I mean, yes. I think doctors prescribing though has become more conservative. Doctors are are becoming more aware of the problem and are are hesitant to you know just roll out a big supply of of, of opioids to people in pain. There's there's some change happening there. But, yeah, I mean, addiction can happen to anyone, and it does, and it kills people from, you know, teenage to 60 or 70 even um, and because of this toxic supply that's out there.
1: So given the news this week about this record number of potential overdoses that emergency services were called to, what is the message that you want to give to the people in charge?
5: Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, what What constitutes an emergency, I want to ask them. If this is not an emergency and, and deserves a, a rem- an emergency response, then what is? We're losing five to six people a day to this. Uh, the numbers are growing, and I believe the numbers probably for March of, of toxic drug deaths is going to be as high as it has been over the last year. Um, I just say move quickly, uh, bash down those barriers, whatever they are, within within government, within the ministry of mental health and addictions, or, or the ministry of health. Do it now before we lose more of our kids. You know, more of our loved ones. Um, an emergency called five years ago without a good response is is incredible. It's it's inc- I'm 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 always in disbelief. Every day I wake up and I think, how can
1: this possibly still not be attended to? Good point. Leslie, thank you so much for your time this morning. You're very welcome. Best of luck. That's Leslie McBain. She's a co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm. She lost her son, as she just told us, to opioid addiction. And she's talking about the fact that this week, five years after we declared a public health emergency, we're not getting any better in dealing with opioid overdoses. Wednesday was an awful record-setting day. Across the province, 138 calls for potential overdoses. That is by far the highest number we have ever had. Well, the commercials finally got to me. I kept seeing them over and over and over again. The ads for Imagine Van Gogh, the immersive exhibit that is on now at the Vancouver Convention Centre. So I looked it up and I thought, wow, this looks amazing, right? It's traveled all over the world. It originated in Paris. It's also so popular that they've recently announced that they're extending the exhibition stay in Vancouver for the summer. Meaning if you want to go check this out, get those tickets now because it's here until August. But let's find out more about this exhibit I'm so curious about how it came about, these giant screens of Van Gogh that put you kind of right in the middle of the artwork. Joining us now is Annabelle Moje, co co-creator of the exhibit. Thank you very much for being here.
8: Thanks to you, and good morning. How did this exhibit come about? Where did the idea come from? The idea came from Cathédrale d'Image. It was the place where I created this exhibition, um, almost 15 years ago, because it's a, a very old exhibition, but which has been every, every year and every time she's going somewhere um, rehabilitated, recreated, but it comes from this place, which is in Provence. Where was Van Gogh the last two years of his life? And that was the most important point because I really wanted to show to everybody coming to this place, which was called Cathedral d'Image, how Van Gogh was seeing the Provence the South of France.
1: How did you select the particular pieces of artwork that you were going to display in this fashion?
8: Because the subject was to show how Van Gogh uh, was painting South of France, the subject was the last two years of his life. And we choose all the, the important paintings of those last two years. So he went to Arles, he went to Saint-Rémy, he finished his life in the suburbs of Paris, in Auvers-sur-Oise, and we selected 1,100 um, pieces of his work of this period. How did
1: you develop these huge screens? It, could you give us an idea of what this immersive exhibit means? What happens when somebody goes in?
8: Ah, it means huge. <laughs> it <laughs> means wow when you arrive in it. Because all the walls, the floor is, um, is, is full of, uh, of images, of details, of uh, Van Gogh's paintings. It's uh, original canvas that's uh, expanded and, and fragmented and then projected into those unusual shapes of uh, to, to in phases, the, the, the mesmering of uh, the exager- uh, exaggeration and distortion that Van Gogh's work. and yeah. And that was very important for me because when you're in front of those details, uh, you can see that sometimes, you know, uh, the brushstrokes seems to be kind of violent. But if you take just a bit of distance with the paintings, you will see that everything is curved and everything is soft. And that's part of the magic of Gogh. Now, it has
1: become extremely popular, Annabelle. Or, or have you been surprised <laughs> by that, the reception? <laughs>
8: Uh no I'm not that surprised because I know van Gogh is uh, is just a so famous painter and he's talking to everybody you know because van Gogh was not was not painting um princes or kings or queens uh Van Gogh was painting peasants he was painting you and I and I'm sure that people um understand or feel that in front of the paintings and there is so many poesy in his paintings mm-hmm. you 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 just looking at the starry night or looking at the footsteps or even the the, 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 the sunflowers, you, you, you just can be touched. You, you, you're just happy or sad. <laughs> it depends.
1: I know. I, I, just looking at the commercial for it, I thought it looked exceptional. Uh, what were some of the, um, the technological challenges in doing this? Because those screens must be huge.
8: Yeah, the, the screens are um, 80 meters high. Uh, so it's, it's a very large piece because sometimes you can see a detail which is just 20 centimeters and who now can be eight meters high. So, yeah, it's, the, it's a great uh, technology exhibition. But for that, I need to thank uh, Julien Baron, which is the co-director of this exhibition with me. And uh, we did a, just a great job because we have almost 50 uh, video projectors on this show, which is really a lot. Yeah. And 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 in fact it helps you really feeling that you are inside the paintings. It looks
1: remarkable. So how how many places all over the world has this gone and is it just going to keep going? <laughs>
8: um you know, we've been to in Canada, we've been to uh, Montreal, we've been to Quebec. Um now we are in Vancouver. We are going to open, I hope so, i uh, crossing fingers to to Edmonton. And and now it will uh, continue uh, this kind of journey. <laughs> it's another kind of journey for Van Gogh to go to Canada. Um, then we will go to the United States, to Boston, and to Seattle at the end of this uh, year. And, and then I don't know, but I'm so happy. They're really so happy because it's another way of discovering Van Gogh, not only in a museum, it's a free way because when you're in this kind of place you you can do what you want you can dance you can shout you can jump and and that's so important i think it's a really family place to be and to discover culture
1: that is so true and now of course people it's limited right because of the uh, covid-19 pandemic
8: yes but does that also yes. help
1: because you're it's more intimate
8: yes but i th- i think it's a it's a really good way uh, to do it you know we are so happy and, and be, because museums are closed in France, for example, and I'm not sure that in Canada, everything, every cultural place are open. But on those kind of place, on immersive place, uh, you have enough place, you know, to be safe when you're visiting. And that was really, really important for me. Well,
1: it's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us this morning to talk about it. We appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) Have a great day. That's Annabelle Moget, who's a co-creator of the exhibit. It is called Imagine Van Gogh. You've probably seen the commercials for this, right? They got me. I kept seeing them over and over and over again on Global and BC1 and thought, I have got to check this out. It looks amazing. It's very popular. Its stay has been extended here in Vancouver. Now it's going to run, I think until the middle end of August, but you do have to get your tickets because of the pandemic. It's a time limited entry. So they give you a A date and a time very specific that you're going to enter and only so many people can go in at that time. So it does mean the tickets get booked up. I could only get tickets for like the middle of July. So do check it out. I think you'll have a great time.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, today is officially World Book Day. That's really all I needed to see to know that I'm into it. Because As any regular listeners know, I do love to read. I love books. And tomorrow actually is also Canadian Independent Bookstore Day. So, two great days to mark by getting a book to read. You know, during the pandemic, I think a lot of people have been doing a lot of reading. I know I have too. And more and more people are actually publishing their own books too. They are deciding that, yeah, I want to be an author. So, we thought, let's talk about that. Joining us now is Megan Williams, the CEO and founder of the Vancouver based self-publishing agency. Megan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Simmy. I enjoy talking to a fellow reader. Oh, so. I'm a big time reader for sure. Tell me, so what is it about, do you think, the last year that has made people decide that they want to publish a book?
9: Um, I think it's a combination of a few things. The, I mean, the real obvious one that I think isn't too hard to figure out is, is that people were faced with a little bit more downtime. Um, a little bit more downtime in like they weren't commuting as much as they used to. Um, and, you know, it, it, the second thing is that it brought up a lot of um, realizations for people recognizing like, what are, what are we waiting for? What are, am I waiting to have somebody else tell me I should publish? Or if I'm sitting on this story and I'm ready to tell it, why not now? If I've got the time, why not now? So our, our business, business has been the beneficiary of that
1: I'll bet. So is it any kind of book? Like, if I decided tomorrow I wanted to write a detective novel, that I could turn to you to do that? Absolutely. So I know there are some
9: different, some companies and some publishers, uh, they niche out in different genres. The self-publishing agency does genres of all types. We've done everything from women's fiction to cookbooks to children's books about being an introvert. We've got the whole gamut.
1: I love that. Do you think this has just kind of brought out the creativity in people? I think so, and
9: I think it's brought out similar to how we saw, um, you know, other home-based businesses throughout the pandemic really, you know, you know, bloom. What we've seen with storytellers as well as people tapping into that creativity, and I you mean, know, you think about sites like Shopify who did really well in the last year. Um, it's that same mentality of people thinking that, like, why wouldn't I share my story? My sh- Like, there there's an audience for it. There are people who could benefit from it. So why not, you right. know, put, a, put my, a book out into the world where people can benefit from it?
1: So there's fewer gatekeepers, though, too, right, Megan? Because now it's not like you don't have to conform to what a publisher thinks this book should be or what thinks what the audience wants.
9: Absolutely. So... Um, this uptick that we've seen, I think we're seeing it. Um, seeing it for a few reasons, of course, but I, with the, with the gatekeeper piece, I think what's happening is people are making the decision. With everything that's happened and we've seen in the media the last year, they really want to control their narrative. And what we're what we're seeing in self publishing is is that authors really want to ensure that their voice is uncensored. And that they don't have someone else deciding for them if their story is commercially appealing or not, um because that's quite frankly what the gatekeepers of the industry are there to do is they, right. they're the they are selling books that they think people will like, but that doesn't mean that they are always they always get it right, but it yeah. also doesn't mean that people shouldn't be able to share their stories like who's to say that your story isn't appealing or not, just if it isn't going to sell? hundreds of thousands of copies doesn't mean that it, it does isn't going to find the right readers in 500 or 5,000 people. You
1: know? I was reading an article the other day about how TikTok has become huge for books uh, because there's so many like book TikToks on there. But I guess that also makes me wonder that how do you, if you're self-published and you want to tell your story, that's great. But then how do you get recognized? Like, how do you get noticed? How do you get your book sold?
9: Um, well, I think it's almost similar to how people find it you know, are finding books on TikTok is there's where our authors see the most amount of success is when they are re- like, they're going back to um, their communities, their families, and it's almost like kindling to the wildfire. So if if you are able to share your story with your immediate network and your immediate platforms, then those people can become become champions for your story and they start sharing it. And we kind of see these, second and third waves of popularity when it comes to stories once you've put out a professionally published product.
1: So what, what is popular right now? Is it like, I know poetry is popular right now. I I never thought I'd see that, but right. You've got a lot of poetry (laughs) books up there on the New York times bestseller list. Yeah,
9: there's uh, poetry is really popular. I say th- um, poetry seems to be something, if I were to observe the, um, the those who are writing and publishing poetry, it's people who have like capped into something where in during a particularly emotional time. Um, memoirs, as always, are very popular because, and that's we are seeing that a lot in self publishing, but of course, a lot coming out of the last year where people are looking to really articulate themselves and help. Sh- hoping that their experiences can help other people and you know I gotta say like we've got some really interesting kids books coming out right now as well so um it's we've got we've got a variety of books but the short version is is I think people are looking for quality and I think people are looking to be entertained because you know I don't know about you but I am almost uh, I think I almost finished Netflix
1: so um, <laughs> you've reached the end of Netflix. Have you? Like, <laughs> I, I think
9: so. I, I'm hitting that end wall now. So yeah. you know, if, if, if somebody can bring value and enrich my life through story um, on the page, then I think those are the books that are going to continue to do really well, not just in 2021, but into the future as well.
1: That is so true. So what is your favorite type of genre to read? Ooh,
9: honestly, I, I, Jump between a really strong women's fiction book when I'm looking to take a you know, sort of a Netflix break, so to speak. But um, I think I'll always default to a well-written memoir. Um, really, I, enjoy, I personally just enjoy learning about other people's lives and what they've learned, and how I can incorporate that
1: their experiences into my own. So, wow. Okay, so you love a good memoir. See, I am a sucker for a thriller. Just oh. any kind of thriller, whether it's like there's a lot of like kind of female oriented thrillers, right? That kind of I think started with Gone Girl and The Girl on the Train and all that kind of stuff. Love that category. But I will pretty much read anything these days.
9: <laughs> and I feel like you like a psychological thriller, yes. not,
1: not yes. something
9: that's like bloody and murdery thrillery.
1: I'll read that too. I'll read, okay. I'll read. I'll read all of it if it looks good. I, I sometimes I feel like there's too many books and not enough time, right? to To get into it, uh, but I find that local authors are really becoming more well known too, aren't they? Yeah, and
9: um, you know, there is local authors similar to almost local businesses. Is that I? I think what we saw in 2020 was this, especially in BC. We saw this really supportive shift that happened in the marketplace across the board, if you think about how many different things we saw on social media about support your local businesses, you know, try and avoid those big box stores, if you can support something in your community, that same mentality has translated over to um, books and publishing. So if there's an opportunity to support a local author versus, you know, somebody who might have, you know, been... You know, more like somebody on the New York Times bestseller list. People are paying attention to local authors. We saw some really nice success stories come out of 2020 with, like, Laysa Faith wrote a memoir called Can't Breathe, and that won the Whistler Independent Book Award and the Canadian Book Club Award for best nonfiction title. Um, Elkie Babicki wrote this really interesting story called Inheritance, and she um, was sharing the psychological ripple effects after her father's survival in a Nazi Nazi concentration camp. And, um, you know, Bill Morrison wrote Lines in the Grass, and he garnered media attention across North America, especially during the election, um, as his book focused on the emotional manipulation in marketing in the media. So lots of variety happening there, but also lots of really, like,
1: quality story and content. I love it. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us.
9: Oh, thank you so much for having And I hope you have, um, I hope your next really good read comes from a BC based, or independent author. I will look for it. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Simi. Have a great day. You
1: too. That's Megan Williams, CEO and founder of the Vancouver-based company, the self-publishing agency, helping local authors just, just tell their story as they want it to be told. Today is World Book Day. Tomorrow is Canadian Independent Bookstore Day. I got to tell you, I have been on a tear reading lately. The last three books that I've read, all of they were excellent and I can't recommend them enough. One was called We Begin at the End by Chris Whitaker. The next one was White Ivy by Susie Yang. Great book. And the last one, I had to read. I read it in five minutes. Love it. I read it every year. Ocean Prey by John Sanford. That's the Lucas Davenport Detective Series. Love that series.